You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to again welcome Francis Steed Sellers from the Washington Post to be with us. Welcome, Francis. Well, thank you very much for having me. Francis is senior writer and reporter on the national desk at the Washington Post. Previously served as editor in the health science and environment section uh, during the H1N1 outbreak 2009. Served previously as editor of style section. So, Francis, let's start with reflections on many of the conversations you've had over the course of the pandemic. Most recently, you had the good fortune to to engage with Henrietta Four, executive director of UNICEF, Francis Collins, head of NIH. But this is a part of a series, the Washington Post Live interview series. We can talk about the genesis of the series itself in a moment and what it's what it's revealed. But I wanted you to reflect on what you've seen in the personality and behavior of these individuals who carry enormous responsibilities, they hold enormous decision power, and how have they adapted to that role, in your view, over these 15 months of the pandemic? Well, I think both the people you've mentioned first, Henrietta Four and uh, Francis Collins, have, as you've said, taken on incredible added burdens to their regular days. And let's start first by talking about UNICEF. UNICEF obviously is the world's largest procurer of vaccines for children and is now taking on this very different vaccine campaign aimed at adults. At the same time as children are facing disasters almost unlike anything we've seen for generations. So UNICEF is very, very worried about education, for example, and about drops in measles and polio vaccines. So there are surges in their, their longstanding concerns about children at the same time as they're taking on this massive job of vaccinating the world in conjunction with COVAX. I mean, I think one of the things that we have seen is an enormous advance since 2009 in the approach to global vaccination. We've got COVAX. We have an aim of getting 2 billion vaccines out relatively quickly before people thought, many, many people thought there would be vaccines. We will be talking about delivering 2 billion around the world. But imagine being Henrietta Four at the top of this organization, managing this new deployment of vaccine at the same time as she's seeing the crisis building in education right. and for children in conflict. 170 million kids out of school. Right. And very little evidence, certainly according to UNICEF data that she talked about, that school is a, for young children is a primary locus of transmission of the illness. So having children away from school and not necessarily at home, I was about to stay at home, but some children don't have an easy home to be in, is an incredible loss for them, a loss of structure. And we could see damage that goes on for generations. So I was full of admiration, I have to say, finishing that interview to see somebody who is managing this, but one cannot help but think that the the strains on the organization are enormous and it cannot continue at this rate without some sort of further investment, right, in these basic ongoing needs that it's been dealing with. To double their responsibility from 2 billion doses of vaccine per year to 4 billion. And that won't be enough, right? 2 billion is one-fifth yeah. of the world's population. And so even as we've seen huge advances since 2009, we need to make bigger gains because 
as everybody says, if this virus is out there in other parts of the world, nobody is safe from it. So they've had to make these big choices. They've had to take on enormous new responsibilities while struggling with all the complications that have come with their original mission. And I think you can see something similar with NIH, right? NIH has is a big juggernaut. There's been a lot of criticism of how slow NIH has been with grant funding prior to the pandemic even. But the pandemic led to, to many changes, led to investment, obviously, in the coronavirus research. But again, there are some costs in other forms of research that are being put aside while so much focuses on overcoming this pandemic. So again, Francis Collins is an enormously judicious person who must have been under tremendous pressure. He's Tony Fauci's boss. He manages this enormous research organization. He's also invested personally in trying to overcome some vaccine hesitancy. He's a man of faith. And we know that communities of faith have, in some groups, have been hesitant to get the vaccine. And he's used his own personal voice to try and persuade people that the science of the vaccine is compatible with being a person of faith. Thank you. I mean, I should add that Henrietta Ford has been a, a counselor and a trustee at CSIS for I think 35 years, and she's one of our dearest friends, one of our most loyal trustees, and we're thrilled that she's in this position. And it is unbelievable when you look at how much political pressure, how rapid the science is evolving, the ethical quandaries you face at each turn. This is really an enormous test of the skill and stamina and genius of any of these individuals who are in this. And it's relentless. I mean, the pressures and the strains and demands are really relentless. And to see them still there 15 months into this. Tell us a little bit about the Washington Post Live series, because as we were talking earlier, this has become a big deal in the Washington Post. And you dove in as the pandemic evolved. Many other institutions pulled back. You you dove in and amped up the frequency, the tempo of all of this so that it's become a major platform Tell us a bit about it and why you made that choice. Steve, you know, the Post is trying to cut into our business at CSIS <laughs> with us. I know. We have a vested interest in getting an answer to this question. So, well, well I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to promote Washington Post Live too much here, you know, because I run all the events at CSIS. And I'll tell you, man, it's it's tough competition over there with uh, the We're Washington Post. We're fighting hard. No, we. So the Washington Post has had, as many news organizations, has had a live platform for a long time now. We used to conduct interviews maybe one or two a week, I think it was, in the newsroom, in a studio in the newsroom, often with a live audience, bringing people in, and they were very successful. And when the pandemic came along, the executive producer and other people in that team decided that rather than pull back, as you said, as some organizations have pulled back thinking that wouldn't work on Zoom or Skype or whatever the forum you use is, the Washington Post decided to double down and go ahead. And it's been immensely successful and with some surprises. As a frequent moderator, I, I think we're doing now one show a day or sometimes two a day. But as a frequent moderator, there's actually a sort of sense of intimacy sometimes you can get mm -hmm. by spending half an hour with a person in a Zoom forum and they're in their own house and they stop and they think. And it's sort of the opposite of the, the soundbite we've become so uh, accustomed to in news television programming. Instead, we allow people to really think through their responses. And I think, as I said, they can tend to be more reflective in that online forum. Do these events typically generate news? Yes, very often they do. 
And when that news is generated, you know, it's, it's live online right away and being tweeted out right away. So the news breaks as it's being spoken. It's really the Washington Post's biggest play in video, though, wouldn't you say? We do have a, a whole politics area that, you know, does live coverage of a lot of events, which is also very big. And yeah. so that, you know, there, there are other um, big areas of video, I think, growing. But this has been a, you know, this is this has changed so much during the pandemic and the subject matters we deal with are so broad that it's become an, yeah, a big part of our business. As a reporter, do you feel now that being at the Washington Post, you're, you're working more for a media company as opposed to a newspaper? Well, again, that change really predated the pandemic a long time ago. And we've, we've been asked for a lot of time, for a long time to be ready to play on different platforms. And so there's the podcast that's put out, which is, a, you know, a wonderful event and often follows up on stories that we've done. When we go out reporting, we often tape record part of our interviews in order to put it onto the podcast. So those things were changing for, you know, a while before the pandemic. But I think the pandemic has made us all so aware that there are many ways to tell our stories. And of course, the post is being very intentional and very experimental in learning new ways to tell stories from, you know, almost a, we had a, um, a story told in the format basically of a graphic novel some years ago, a couple of years ago now, I think it was. But it was extremely accurate in the way it was presented. So though, although the format was unfamiliar, the level of detail and accuracy in the presentation of that story was, was very, very high. Let me ask you this. We're in an era in journalism and policy and the coverage of policy where with COVID and all the variants and all the different information that's floating around there, there's a lot of times where you're covering something and the answer to you know what you're covering is we don't know. How do you cover we don't know as a reporter? That's a huge challenge. I think it's also a huge challenge for people in public health, right? I think it's one of the challenges that the CDC has faced in how to put out messaging when they aren't sure about things. You will see us tackling it in various ways. So Q&A is a very good example. If we can't give a firm answer, rather than trying to create a narrative through our reporting, it's often more helpful, I think, to give a Q&A. Another thing you'll see that we have done is to, if there's no certain answer for how you should behave after you've got vaccinated, for example, or we don't know the certain answer yet, ask five epidemiologists how are they behaving and how do they how are they assessing the risk themselves so taking experts and just using their responses i think has been very helpful to people as well so there's an element in here of what we call service journalism it's always been there it used to run in weekly sections but we're doing a lot of it almost on a daily basis to try and keep people as well informed as we can of the best answers to the we don't know question we face this extraordinarily pernicious virus right and and it's continuing to surprise us. It's continuing to be unpredictable and dangerous. And yet we're also trying, the narrative we're trying to bring across to the country is that we're approaching a turning point. We're approaching a pivot. We have great vaccines. The vaccine supply problems and logistics are being overcome in the United States. And we're trying to get people to be hopeful and optimistic and compliant, that they not be hesitant or refuse refuse the opportunity for vaccines. So we have a, a big national mission that we are trying to accomplish, but we're also trying to keep people informed as a matter of policy about what we don't know and, and do know. But if we emphasize too much of the we don't know, people go, hmm, 
maybe I'm just going to sit out this vaccine, which is a huge impediment for us accomplishing that national mission. Right. If we're to reach herd immunity or some level of immunity, that means we can reduce the footprint of the virus in this country. It is huge. So there are a lot of strategies that are being adapted to, adopted to try to address hesitancy with people, and they vary. Politics hasn't played into any other vaccine campaign, as far as I know, as much as it does in this one. So we have a large group, something like 50% of Republican men, for example, who have said they don't want to take the vaccine, which is a, a new phenomenon, and strategies have to be created to address that phenomenon. But when you talk to people, to experts on vaccine hesitancy, one of the points they always bring up is vaccine access. It's not always about hesitancy. People don't have to be 100% gung-ho in order to get a vaccine. It has to be easy enough for them to be able to get it without putting them out. So if, you know, if the vaccine is only available in a clinic that's open from nine till five, and if you have a job that means you have to work from nine till five, you're less likely to get a vaccine. I think one of the things we've already seen, I did a story with colleagues showing that something like four in 10 healthcare workers had not been vaccinated when we wrote the story a couple of weeks ago, which seemed very high. But in fact, the vaccines were available. There was no real preparation for people. The vaccines were available and then shipped you know, immediately after they were they received emergency authorization. So among the early adopters were, were scientists, doctors who had been able to follow the science and understood the vaccines. But healthcare workers include that healthcare workers are us. They include people who work in people's homes and don't have access to this high level of information. And there's no reason why they should not be more eager to get the vaccine than other people are. They needed to wait until they saw other people getting it. So I think in some of these areas, we'll see hesitancy drop because people really want to know, did my friend get it and how did they feel afterwards? And did it, yeah. you know, are they okay? Well, we're also seeing that people are responding when they're engaged one-on-one -on -one or in a very targeted way, in a very respectful way in order to air their hesitations and their concerns and have them addressed. And it's interesting that the, this administration, Biden administration is not launching a mass communications campaign. The Ad Council's doing one, but we don't have a U.S. federal campaign. We have very aggregate, disaggregated and targeted approaches that are showing some results. One of the, the things I'm wondering about is social media campaigns. As we know from political campaigns, again, we're talking about the people on the fence that we care about. We we can't worry too much or spend too much time on true anti-vaxxers. They're a small proportion of the population and they are not going to get vaccinated. We don't worry right about the early adopters. They are they are going to get vaccinated. So those two wings you don't have to worry about. But the people in the middle, you need to sort of right. nudge in the right direction. And I, I do think it's interesting that political campaigns have learned how to do this so very well by drilling down into social media and finding who the influencers are and how, how to get people to listen. Public health again, underfunded for so many years, has probably doesn't have the expertise or the money that political campaigns do to try to figure out how to meet those people in the places where they get their information. Now, they are doing tried and true methods like, again, at faith communities. So, you know, we know that trusted messengers in, in churches and even giving out the vaccines in churches is a, is a persuasive way for people to feel comfortable there's a group in Philadelphia I talked to called the Black Doctors Consortium, and the lead leader of that group said to me, you know, it's it's great that the vice president was seen on camera getting her vaccine. It's more important that people's barber are seen getting their vaccine. In other words, seeing somebody you know being able to say, hey, you know, you did okay, I should probably get it. To make it normative, 
in communities is very, very important. It's a relatively small amount of money that would need to be devoted to a, a massive PR campaign when you're talking about the billions and billions of dollars that we're spending on, you know, the Rescue Act, on, on the development, all that. You're talking about a relatively cheap price tag for communicating. And yet one of the biggest problems that you and your colleagues have identified is not just that there's vaccine hesitancy, not just that there is vaccine resistance, but that there's a massive amount of vaccine confusion out there. And which corresponds to, you know, almost every issue of this pandemic. And so it's sort of mystifying why there's not something more targeted at scale. Yeah. And I wonder if that's, you know, if you go back to smoking, anti-smoking campaigns, there were some very successful ones in television, right? I just think the way people get their information has changed now. And um, we need to be thinking about new means of reaching them. But the expertise in in and around government exists. We know how to target people through Facebook. We know how to target people through Twitter. We even know how to target people through Instagram and TikTok. It was a really interesting group, and I don't think they're working on vaccines, but they were working on masking um, No COVID, which was started by Mm -hmm. James Carville. Um, John Barry Mm -hmm. was involved in it last year, last spring. And they were, were driving down into uh, data to figure out where the virus was, which county the virus was next likely to spread to, and then finding people who had a big social media footprint and were influencers in that county and using them to talk to people. So it could have been football coaches or country music people, or Chris Rock from SNL was one of the people, Wanda Sykes, I think, addressed Norfolk, Virginia, when the the virus seemed to be appearing there. And I haven't yet come across that same sort of strategy with the vaccine. Not to say it isn't out there, but I'd be interested. Well, one thing that was that happened recently was when, when it became apparent that 50% of Republican males were telling pollsters they were not going to take up the vaccine. And when you looked at this, they were young. It was particularly problematic for those who were younger, those who were more rural. There was a, uh, was it Frank Luntz, the noted pollster, Republican pollster, pulled together 20 people for, on a Saturday a few weeks ago and brought in some noted folks like Tom Frieden and others to engage with these 20 people and asked them all these questions. So who did they want to hear from? Did they want to hear from the president? They want to hear from elected Republican officials? And it was very interesting that they said, we just want to hear from people that we think really know what they're talking about. We don't want, we don't want to add, we don't want to be the target of a PSA. We don't want to be the target of politicians telling us we just want somebody that we re- believe. And so at the end of this two-hour session, 19 of the 20 had, had changed their minds. Uh, and that showed to me that the issue, this gets to, uh, to Andrew's point, this, this topic has become so politicized in people's feelings that people feel like their own personal feelings are getting overridden by some political confrontation, contestation, and they're just fed up with it. And, they, and they're fed up with being accused or suggesting, well, well you're just ignorant or you're just ideological. They, they have real concerns that they want to express. They have real issues they want, but they feel like it's become so overheated that they don't know how to escape it. I can't tell you the number of times, and most recently, I think Kelly Moore, who ran the um, H1N1 vaccine in 2009 in Tennessee and uh, now works for an education vaccine advocacy group. 
And I can't tell you the number of times people like that have said to me, you know, if I take five minutes to listen to somebody's concerns and then address them, they almost always walk away and say, now I get it and I'll get the, and I'll go and get the vaccines. But it's being able to have that conversation, right? And I'm not sure that a big billboard saying go and get vaccinated right. or a big PSA is the answer here. People do need to hear from people they know and trust what the actual facts are. Francis, how do you size up today what the mood is in this country? How would you characterize it? You're able as a reporter, I know you've been a little more constrained in physically being able to get out, but you still dive into stories all over this country with different angles in different slices of society and the like. I found that information about Republican men distressing because I think it reflects a division and gulf that people talked about in 2016 when we were covering the campaign then, and I think may still haunt us now. I think that surprised a lot of people. And people had thought coastally, and they talked about big cities and overcoming this incredible reluctance that has been uh, perceived for very good reasons in communities of color. And now we're seeing reluctance among another whole group that maybe hadn't been anticipated in the same way. So in terms of the mood of the country, gosh, how hard it is. I mean, the, there is certainly optimism that we may be moving ahead at the moment. I mean, these vaccines are, inc I mean, who would have thought a year ago that we'd be where we are now with so many vaccines available? It's astounding and such very, very good vaccines. But I still think we have immense divisions to overcome. And I think one of, just going back to vaccines, one I think one of the, tr the, the, the challenges about these particular vaccines is, is in a way, because they're very good, people kind of look at them as a personal bulletproof vest. And vaccines yes. really work as a public health measure, not as a personal measure, right? They're, they're about reducing the amount of virus out there. That's how we'll overcome this is by getting rid of virus generally. And so we need to understand still, and I think this has been a troubled message throughout this, that we're all in this together. Unless we can vaccinate everybody, we're all going to be at risk going ahead. This is a really important point that you're making is that people get vaccinated and they think it's like all of a sudden, you know, they're Superman or Superwoman. And it's not a bulletproof vest. It's what you said it is. And that's not a story that's really coming through, I think, in the mainstream discourse. That's interesting. And it's certainly something I find myself talking about. So probably it's something we should write about more. Um, and it was a, a point I think first made to me by one of my colleagues. And it's sort of, it really captured the challenge. And in fact, these vaccines are so very effective, they they almost do feel like bulletproof vests, right? <laughs> People think they can just go and do anything. But no, leave those variants out there uh, mutating and leave the virus out there mutating. And, you know, we could see the loss of efficacy of these vaccines and further problems ahead. So we really do have to continue thinking about this as a communal global problem and not something we've solved for each of us individually, and then we can move on. Well, and, and you just said something really interesting too, not just a national United States problem, a global problem. And that's something Steve's been talking about a lot, you know, regarding COVAX and other issues. But like, we as Americans, you know, so, so we're thinking in two ways. One, we get vaccinated. So that means we can immediately go to a baseball game and, you know, start hanging out with everybody and we can get in Uber and we can resume our life, right? Well, that's not exactly true. We have to still be really careful and observe, you know, social distancing and masking and be careful. 
But further than that, we're not thinking – a lot of Americans are thinking, OK, well, we got to get the United States vaccinated. But we're not thinking about what the implications of other countries not having one vaccination Right. Is. So, yeah, I mean, these are enormous issues. The U.S. is going to be a sort of – soon have a glut of vaccine, it seems. We'll have more vaccine than we need. How that is distributed, where it's distributed, we get into all sorts of issues of diplomacy and nationalism that – go beyond the science. I think it's highly complicated and something Steve probably knows a lot more about than I do. We have a major paper coming out next week on that very topic. So it is a big topic and we're moving from scarcity to plenty. And I think the consciousness of the of the variants and the threat of the variants is driving a recalculation that we can't sequence our behavior. We can't say only when we have completed vaccination of Americans to do we turn our attention globally? Because we'll just give up precious time. And we do need a diplomatic strategy. We need a strategy. We need goals. Right. A dipl- and logistical strategy. I mean, you know, the logistics here are, and I think back now to UNICEF, the logistics are yeah. mind boggling. And the need also probably, and this is a point that Henrietta Four made to me, for a vaccine that's a single shot, you know, they can manage cold chain at UNICEF. They've got solar panels. They They can transport vaccines, but how much easier it would be to have a cheap single shot vaccine. Single shot, I think, is very, very important because for a lot of people, getting back to a clinic or being found for a second time at the right spacing is a challenge. As uh, you know, any of us who've begun this process knows that, you know, rescheduling something three weeks or four weeks on or making sure that can be a challenge. You don't necessarily know what your life will be like three or four weeks ahead. What do you think about the vaccine passport, vaccine certificate issue that's swirling right now? What, 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 are you, what are you hearing about that? So it's interesting. I was talking to a vaccine specialist actually from UNC recently who, who thought that some sort, of, some sort of mandates would eventually become necessary. I think putting mandates onto anything, uh, whether it's travel or can be very counterproductive if you do it too quickly. People need to be educated to be ready to take the vaccine. I was doing some reporting recently actually in Boston among some Latino evangelicals who were very concerned that, and they had got this wrong information off the internet, that they were being forced to take the vaccine and that would then be um, traced through the vaccine. There's this rumor that's been out that they can. Um, But they were also concerned that they would have to have the vaccine in order to travel home. They were concerned about vaccine passports and what that meant for their freedoms. And Ultimately, we may have some sort of travel passport. But again, I think education, education, education all the way along and giving people an understanding of what's going on is the first step. Federal government's being very cautious in all this. I mean, they're reminding everybody of what a, any sort of digital passport has to, has to live up to in terms of the standards for it. You know, it's got to be digital and hard copy. It's got to be right. privacy respecting. Et cetera, et cetera. We're sort of getting to a stage of, of people being vaccinated before we've prepared ourselves yeah. for what it means after they're vaccinated. The science has moved so quickly, in a yeah. sense, we, we keep getting ahead of ourselves, which is yeah. a wonderful situation in some ways to be in. But And we're going to see certain sectors move fairly quickly in the economy. I mean, international travel, obviously, right? Universities and colleges. The hospitality industry, you know, the hotel industry is looking at how to incentivize people, not to exclude, but to incentivize people who are vaccinated. There's going to be a different sort of world here. And we're learning a lot from the Israelis. We're learning a lot from what's going on in Britain and elsewhere. 
We'll see. I think it's going to be tough here in the United States. We have to avoid this, this issue getting captured in the political trap. Absolutely. Again, it has to be, a, you know, science and education, in fact, has to come through rather than uh, the sort of polarization that we've lived with so Francis, long. before we run out of time, how do you think this pandemic is going to change the kind of journalism that you do over time? What do you, what you know, do you, what I often you ask think? people at the end of those, those online interviews, Washington Post Live, how things are going to change. And, you know, um, Zoom has changed the way I do my work. I want to go back to, to traveling. I, I, one of the things I miss enormously is the unpredictable meeting with somebody. It's often the source of the best story. I go out doing some, you know, one kind of story and then I meet somebody and the conversation I have with that person who I never expect to meet will lead to something completely different. I'm thinking right now back to a story I did in December 2019 in the Navajo Nation and met a woman who I was out there to do a story about the lack of running water, which of course has become so significant and people can't wash hands and and so devastated people in the Navajo Nation just months later when they had so few facilities. But I knocked on a door and met a woman who described to me her life without running water. I, I can't find that person. I, I, I'm still in touch with her. I don't find that person sitting in my house. So although the technologies we're using have enabled me to speak internationally, see inside other people's rooms when they hold up their computers and move them around and they've given me some forms of access. I desperately want to go back to my real life meetings with people that shed so much light for me on how they live. Francis, we'll look forward to that day where we can do that and where you can really do your job the way you're intended to. Well, thank you. And as it, there will be other changes that come with all these wonderful new technologies, but there's nothing that beats those face-to-face meetings. One last question. What gives you the greatest hope and optimism? Oh, gosh, science, I guess. I mean, right now we're talking about the pandemic. I mean, these vaccines have been a remarkable achievement. And with every step, there have been scientists who have been figuring things out, even being honest when they don't know about things and leading the way. And let's hope that they can save more lives as they've done already. Thanks so much, Francis. This has been terrific. We're really grateful that you come and spend time with us again. Thank you. 